Hello, and welcome to the Hardcore Zen Podcast. I'm Brad Warner. I'm your host. I am the author of Hardcore Zen, Sit Down and Shut Up, uh, Letters to a Dead Friend about Zen, Zen Wrapped in Karma Dipped in Chocolate, and many other books about Zen Buddhism and other stuff. This podcast is supported solely by your donations. If you want to donate, you can go to hardcorezen.info slash donate. That is hardcorezen.info slash donate. There you will find links to my Patreon and PayPal accounts. That is my main way of making a living. So I really appreciate your support, but this is offered for free, so you don't have to donate if you don't want it. Okay, today's episode is a talk I gave on September 3rd, 2021 in Lammi, Finland, on my recent European tour, and the subject is a koan called One Bright Pearl. So take it away, Brad. So I was thinking about, I've been thinking about this for a a while now. Um, There's a Zen teacher, a Chinese Zen teacher from, let's see, it says here, the year 842, uh, this was uh, this thing was written, and uh, Huangpo is the name of the man. And sometimes, if you read a Japanese source, they pronounce his name. Um, oh my God, why can't I remember now? What is Huangpo? Obaku, Obaku. Uh, it's just because the Japanese people pronounce the Chinese characters in a different way from the Chinese people. So. It's the same name. Huangpo and Obaku are the same person. And if you read Dogen's Shobo Genzo, in some places he praises Huangpo, or he calls him Obaku, as the, one of the greatest masters. And he just there, there's some passages where he just talks about how uh, Huangpo is, is, is one of the great ones. And I didn't... Uh, read Huang Po's works for, you know, until maybe, I don't know, five years ago or something, somebody came um, at the uh, Angel City Zen Center. We, we just have uh, resident, or not residents, students give the talk sometimes, because I don't want to give the talk every week, really, is the reason. I'm just lazy. But, um, you know, we, certain people will give talks, and one, one day uh, one of the people in there brought in a uh, a book of Huang Po's teachings and was kind of giving a talk about Huang Po and I thought, oh, this is great. And then I realized, oh, this is the person that Dogen always talked about. This is um, Obaku uh, because you know, the name is pronounced differently. I didn't realize it was the same person. So I'm going to read you this is kind of, the thing I'm going to read you is probably the most famous it's just one paragraph by Huang Po. And it's, it's the first paragraph of the, of the book called Transmission of the Mind. And this was, Huang Po was a, a Zen teacher, and he had a student, um, Pei, Pei Xu, I think is his name, who was a government official of, of some kind, who wanted to record some of his talks, because he thought he's giving such great talks, and Huang Po refused for a while and then finally said okay you can you can write these down and uh, in some of the talks i don't know which ones he's criticizing pay you for for writing what he's saying <laughs> he says you shouldn't be writing this just listen but he writes it anyway so that's kind of funny 
But uh, here's, the, here's the first part of transmission of the mind. It says, Buddhas and beings are just this one mind and nothing else. From time without beginning, this mind has never been born or destroyed. It isn't blue or yellow. It has no form or characteristics. It isn't subject to existence or non-existence. It doesn't qualify as new or old. It isn't long or short. It isn't big or small. It exceeds all limits, descriptions, imitations, or comparisons. It's right here in this body. If you think about it, you've missed it. Like space, it has no borders and can't be measured. Just this one mind, this is the Buddha. There is no difference between a Buddha and a being, like just a regular person. But beings are attached to appearances and search outside of themselves. And their searching leads them further astray. Sending a Buddha to find a Buddha, using the mind to grasp the mind, they could wear themselves out for kalpas without end. And kalpa is an incredibly long period of time. And they still wouldn't find it. They don't realize that if they stopped thinking and worrying about it, the Buddha would appear before them. This mind is a Buddha. A Buddha is a being. When it's a being, this mind doesn't shrink. And when it's a Buddha, this mind doesn't expand. And there's, a, the, the entire, uh, there's, there's several translations I've uh, found. I started getting really interested in Huang Po. So I found there's, um, I think, three or four different <coughs> English translations of, of his recorded sayings. There's a kind of a, an old one that was done in the 1950s that has a black uh, cover, and that's the most common one. And this is, a, this is actually a newer translation by uh, a guy named Red Pine. I forget his name. He's actually an American, but he was given the um, Dharma name Red Pine, so he uses that for his, his, um, his writings. But uh, when I looked at the translations, one of the interesting things is the translations are all very similar. So some, some people, uh, when they translate them, everybody translates it a little bit differently. But for, uh, for Wang Po, it's, it's very much uh, the same. So this idea of all things are the mind, this beginningless mind, and this, um, this uh, mind of, of nothingness or emptiness it sounds kind of abstract and strange, I think, when, when you first hear it. It certainly did to me, because I didn't think of myself as, as being mind, or, or this, you know, this floor as being mind, or, or uh, you know, this sky as being an aspect of mind and, and all of that. Uh, it took a lot of practice to see it. But lately I've been you know, interested in... It's always dangerous to talk about physics and science when you're a Zen teacher because all Zen teachers go co completely wrong when they talk about that. But even so, I, I find some of it very interesting. Uh, there's a book, I haven't read the, the, the whole book yet, but a friend of mine who read the whole book and we talked about it, he said, oh, you don't need to read the book, you get it already. <laughs> he, thought, he thought it sounded like uh, I understood it just from reading parts of the book, but it was called A Universe from Nothing. Have you heard about this book? It's a, it's a physicist, uh, I forgot his name, and, but his idea is slightly controversial, but, 
but not too controversial uh, among modern physics is that the whole universe is a manifestation of nothing. So if you if nothing if there's nothingness, it's unstable and it wants to become something. You know, it, that's a kind of a funny way to put it, but it it becomes something. So the the reason the universe is here is because it is actually nothing. <laughs> and and it's very interesting because it this um, the the guy who wrote the book uh, he has a real disdain. He hates religion. Uh, and he, he's so critical of it and he even includes Buddhism and they're all terrible and religions are, are terrible and they just, you know, and I'm going, but, but you sound like a Buddhist. <laughs> you know, when you, when you have this theory of, of uh, the, the universe is, is uh, nothing. Um, another guy I like is Carlo Rovelli. He's an Italian um, physicist and he writes... Uh, some interesting books about uh, the same sort of topics and and um, and um, says kind of similar things about uh, the you know the um, when you look at the, the the at the very microscopic level you find that everything's just sort of patterns of energy with no real form to them and uh, but we we live in this kind of uh, level of, of uh, existence where we see everything as form but as maybe it's not really a form at all so this idea of everything being mind is very interesting but the the interesting thing about the idea of everything being mind is it's also something else and that's why I brought another piece of writing I think I I know that when I was I think it was the last time I was in Europe. I was very fascinated with this story, too. So maybe I even spoke about it here. I don't know. But it doesn't matter. We can always talk about it again. And I talked about this in Turku when I was talking, uh, was it two nights ago? Anyway, whenever it was, I, I happened to remember it, and now I brought it with me. So this is the story of, of, of One Bright Pearl. And... I want to tell you two different versions of the story because I think they're both interesting. This one comes from a book uh, called Embracing Mind, and it's uh, Kobenchino Otogawa Roshi, who was the teacher of my first Zen teacher. So my first Zen teacher was an American guy named Tim McCarthy, but his teacher was a Japanese guy named Kobun. And somebody, not Tim, some other student of Coben's uh, recorded some of his talks and made a book out of it called Embracing Mind. And this is uh, included in that. And he's telling, Coben is telling the story of, uh, of One Bright Pearl, but he's telling it kind of from memory rather than, rather than um, you know, reading it out of a book. So he, he gets it slightly wrong, but I like the way he... he I, wrong is kind of a funny term. He's not getting it wrong, but he's not telling... He's trying to tell the story that Dogen tells, but he's not telling it exactly the way Dogen tells it. So I'm going to read his version first, and then I'll read Dogen's version, which he's trying... He's remembering and telling to his students. So here we go. This is uh, the Coben's version of it. Uh, there's a story about one of Zen Master Seppo's disciples whose father was a fisherman in the Yangtze River, and this young man was his helper, the son. 
Every day they caught a huge carp or something in the big river. One night the moon was bright, so they set up night fishing. But the father slipped and went into the water. Maybe a big fish caught the hook and pulled him down. And so he was drowning from the slippery river bank. The son tried to save him and threw out his bamboo poles and fishing tackles, trying to save his father until he himself was slipping. So finally he had to let the poles go, and his father sank in the moonlight. The son's mind was kind of screwed up at that moment, and he ran away. So he ran to a monastery of Seppo, uh, who was called Snow Peak Seppo Gisan, a very famous Rinzai teacher. After years of practice with Seppo, the disciple, whose name was Gensha, told Seppo, I'm no good. I must go away from this place. So he began to climb the mountain until in the dark he kicked a sharp rock. When he held on to his toes, they felt warm and yucky. Oh no, it hurts. And he said to himself, this body and mind do not exist. This is kind of what he's learning from people like Huang Po. This body and mind do not exist, I know. But where is this pain coming from? He sat there thinking, wait a minute, what did I say? So he started to climb back down the path, back to Master Snow Peak. I was wrong, so I came back, he says to his teacher. When the master asked him why he had returned, he answered, Bodhidharma hasn't, gone, hasn't come to China. The second patriarch hasn't gone to India. This was a strange statement since Bodhidharma came to China. Everyone knew that. And Hueko, Bodhidharma's student, had gone to India. What he meant was that Bodhidharma didn't need to come to China and Hueko didn't need to go to India. Seppo recognized uh, something underneath this statement. Uh, so Gensha stayed there, that's the student who stuck his toe, in Kosei, west of the Yangtze, and taught many people, maintaining that this entire universe is nothing but a bundle of light. That's how, that's how um, Coben told the story. Now, I put this in my Kindle this morning, but it's a weird format, and I'm going to try to read it. Oh, no, I already messed it up. Uh, where is it? Yeah, I hate when people do Kindle, but they don't format it correctly. So uh, whoever did this didn't format it right. But here, here it is from, um, this is from Nishijima Cross translation of Shobogen, so the same story. Uh, in this Saha world, in the great kingdom of Sung in Fuchou province at Gensazan Temple, there lived great master Shiitsu, whose dharma name as a monk was Shibi, and whose surname was Sha. They always do this, and it's very confusing. That's Gensha. So Gensha, we just called him in the last one. While still a layman, he loved fishing, and he would float down the Nantai River. I think Nantai is the Japanese pronunciation of Yangtze. On his boat, following the other fishermen. It may have been that he was not waiting even for the fish with the golden scales that lands itself without being fished which uh, Nishijima Roshi says he had a very uh, relaxed way of life. And he, now, interestingly, Dogen does not tell the story of, of Gensha losing his father, which I think is, a, and I looked it up, and that's actually a standard part, but for reasons I don't know, um, Dogen leaves this out. At the beginning of the Kansu era of the Tang dynasty, suddenly he desires to leave secular society. I wish he would say why, because that's an interesting part of the story. He leaves his boat and enters the mountains. He's already 30 years old, 
but he has realized the precariousness of the floating world and has recognized the nobility of Buddha's way. So realize the precariousness of the floating world is kind of the only thing Dogen says about why he decided to go, you know, having seen his father die right in front of him. Uh, but that's kind of an interesting way to put it. At last he climbs Sepozan Mountain and enters the uh, order of great master Shinkakuhu's Seppo. They, they always have six or seven names these, in, in these old stories. I, it's like Russian novels or something, just trying to confuse you. And pursues the truth day and night. One day, in order to explore widely the surrounding districts, he leaves the mountain carrying a traveling bag. But as he does so, he stubs his toe on a stone. Bleeding and in great pain, Master Gensha all at once reflects as follows. They say this body is not real existence. Where does the pain come from? He thereupon returns to Seppo. That's his teacher. Seppo asks him, what is it, B of the Dutta? That's another nickname for Gensha. Doesn't matter. Gensha says, in the end, I just cannot be deceived by others. And uh, that's the part that uh, Koben leaves out. But um, here's the footnote. Uh, that Nishijima Roshi gives. The expression is ironic. Master Gensha makes it sound as if he would like to be able to learn from others, but in the end it is impossible. He cannot be satisfied with second-hand knowledge, but only by his own experience. So that's it. Seppo, loving these words very much, says, Is there anyone who does not have these words inside of them? But is there anyone who can speak these words? Seppo asks further, be of the Dutta, that's Gensha, why do you not go exploring? Master Gensha says, Bodhidharma did not come to the eastern lands, the second patriarch did not go to the western heavens. Eastern lands is China and western heavens is India. Seppo praised this very much. In his usual life as a fisherman, Master Gensha had never even seen sutras and texts, even in a dream. Nevertheless, profundity of will being foremost, his outstanding resolve made itself apparent. Seppo himself considered Gensha to be outstanding among the Sangha. He praised Gensha as a preeminent member of the order. Uh, he's talking about how, how serious he was. I'm going to um, skip that part. Uh, after he had attained the truth, this is Gensha at last, he taught people with the words that the whole universe in ten directions is one bright pearl. One day a monk asks him, I have heard the master's words that the whole universe in ten directions is one bright pearl. How should the student understand this? The master says, the whole universe in ten directions is one bright pearl. What is the use of understanding? On, on a later day, the master asks the question back to the same monk. The whole universe is ten, in ten directions is one bright pearl. How do you understand this? The monk says, the whole universe in ten directions is one bright pearl. What is the use of understanding? The master says, I see that you are struggling to get inside a demon's cave in a black mountain. So he's not, uh, he doesn't take that imitation of his own teaching. Um, so uh, Dogen has a lot to say, and I'm not going to try to read all of it, but um, there's so much interesting stuff in here. Oh, here he uses his famous phrase, we should turn back light and reflect. That's his uh, description of, of doing zazen. Um, let's see. But he... Um, I wish I could find this. I should have uh, footnotes, or not footnotes, some um, post-its or something. 
Well, anyway, I'll try to do it from memory like uh, Coben did. <clears throat> he basically says, understanding and not understanding, and even the mistakes we make are still part of the same bright pearl that he's talking about. The whole universe is one bright pearl. Um, and I, I think it's an interesting description because for me, the, the question has always been, what is this life I'm living in? And what, what, um, what, what is all this? And the only answer that ever worked for me was the very confusing answer that uh, these old Zen masters give. Uh, and, uh, and I liked that better than any of the other religious answers that I discovered. And so I started doing this silly um, practice that we do, you know, sitting still all the time and just letting go. And it doesn't always feel like I'm, I'm finding the one bright pearl of the, of the universe but, um, but sometimes it does. Sometimes it becomes very quiet and the relationship between all things can be seen. Uh, I was reading a commentary about it by Shohaku Okumura, and he was kind of saying some interesting ways of understanding this and uh, trying to remember it from memory. Uh, about the idea of subject and object, you know, we we tend to have this idea that I am I am the subject. I don't know. Maybe everybody feels this way, but I'm I'm here in this universe, and I'm a kind of a closed box, maybe, uh, who exists as apart from the universe and experiences it from the outside. So here's this universe coming from the outside and and I experience it that way and I just experience whatever I can experience when it comes to me from wherever it comes. But this idea in, in Buddhism is that the whole universe, as I said from Huang Po's description, is the one mind or the bright pearl. And it's all one thing, but it's hard for us to understand that sometimes. And what Okumura Roshi was saying in his interpretation of the story of One Bright Pearl is that the moment he, Gensha, contacts the rock, he's no longer, it's no longer subject and object. It's, uh, it's, it's just one thing, and that's what he means when he says, where does this pain come from? It's not a question, it's a statement. Uh, and, and often this is the funny way Dogen describes things. If, if you get a question like that, where does this pain come from? Uh, the answer is the pain comes from where? <laughs> you know, it's, it's from this kind of uh, thing you can't, you can't really name, and it just becomes a question, but the question is also a statement like that. So that's some weird Zen stuff that I thought of talking about. I think this, this story, ever since I first heard it a long time ago, was, was always a, one of my favorite stories in all the Zen literature. Because uh, uh, I don't know exactly what it means. There is, there's a, a similar story that I think is kind of interesting that I, I did this, I guess it's about a year ago, uh, 
and maybe some of you even saw it, I did a kind of an online uh, talk with Stephen Batchelor, who's a kind of a well-known Buddhist teacher. And I mentioned something about Gensha's stone, and he, he brought up a story which I had not heard before. Um, damn, I'm forgetting the name of the, of the person, but it was a, uh, I think it's Bishop Berkeley, was a, an idealistic philosopher in uh, Western I, I, idealism. And he had a, an idea which superficially sounds very much like Huang Po's idea, that, that everything is just ideas, you know, and nothing really exists. And, and I forget who the guy is, but it's a, a kind of a famous other philosopher who's listening to Bishop Berkeley. And somebody says, well, you know, his philosophy sounds interesting, but how can you refute this philosophy? And this guy says, I, I can refute it like this, and he kicks a rock, you know. He's, of course, he's hurt his, his foot by doing that, but that's his idea that he, he, he rejects this idea. Uh, and and uh, so in Gensha's story, he doesn't. He, he kicks the rock, and instead of rejecting the idea of everything is one mind, he, he finds that it's true. Um, and I think it's because the ideas are, even though they sound similar, there's a, an important difference between them. And um, one of the ways that Dogen tries to express it is by using two different words in Japanese that both, if you translate them to English, translate as self. And one is uh, jiko and one is ware. And if any of you watched my videos and stuff, I started talking about this because it was something I just noticed recently. You know, all the time of reading Dogen and even reading it in Japanese, somehow I just missed this this uh, little trick he does in language, which you you don't notice if you're reading it in English because it's just the same word in English. It's always self, 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 self. Um, but uh, there are times when he's talking about self where he's using this word jiko and times where he's using the word ware. And ware is a very common... Japanese word in in the past it doesn't uh, it's not used so much today the only time you hear it these days is in a, a plural form ware ware which means we and uh, but in the past it was used in a single singular form as ware and it's just a kind of way of referring to to yourself but when Dogen uses the word ware he's talking about this kind of um, ego self, this sense of myself as a separate thing from the rest of the universe. And when he uses the word jiko, he's talking about self in a, in a, in a bigger term, that in, in the, the whole universe is, is self. And um, it's, it's a quite interesting uh, way to, to, uh, to talk about it. When when I first heard this stuff, I always thought it was an ab abstraction or just an idea. Oh, you can think of the whole universe as self, you know. That's what I, I took it to mean. You know, it's, you know, it's just a way of thinking about things. If you think about, about the whole universe as being part of yourself, then it's maybe, you know, makes you feel better or, or something. I don't know. But uh, after years of practicing, it became more and more clear that this was a, a description of the way things actually are. Um, 
my teacher used a phrase when he, he, my first teacher, Tim, said something like, it's more you than you could ever be. And I, I remember that was stuck in the back of my mind for years, and I didn't know what that meant and until one day I, I understood what that meant. I was just kind of looking around going, oh yeah, this is, this is all me. Uh, but not me in the sense of my individual self. Uh, my individual self, if you want to kind of focus on that, is just a part of it. It would sound very egotistical to say this is all me. And I think that's what sort of Bishop Berkeley's version of idealism was, was trying to do, you know, trying to say it's all me. But it's not all me. But on the other hand, it is. <laughs> it is all, all me. Um, there's a, a TV show uh, called Ancient Aliens. Has anybody seen this TV show? A really stupid TV show. I really love this show, even though it's the dumbest thing. Um, and it's, it's on the History Channel, of all things. And they just go different places, these, these different uh, alien uh, people who are interested in aliens, and they go and look at the Mayan ruins or the Egyptian ruins, and they go, oh yeah, the aliens must have uh, been involved in building this or something. And there's a kind of a, a meme that developed, and it was on my shirt that I wore yesterday, if anybody noticed it, but it's from the TV show. And the, the one guy, his name is, um, oh, hell, what this guy? Uh, he's got a Greek name. Um, anyway, ah, I forgot his name. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Tsukulos. Tsukulos? Anyway. He, so there's a picture of him. He's got this crazy hair, and they, it says, I'm not saying it's aliens, but it's aliens. Uh, and he never actually says that on the show, but he kind of says things like that all the time on the show. Well, it may not be aliens, but <laughs> but it's aliens. And uh, sometimes I feel like uh, when I read Dogen, it sounds like it's. It, I'm not saying it's aliens, but it's aliens. You know, I'm not saying it's all self, but it's all self. <laughs> uh, so I feel like uh, I learned a lot about Dogen from ancient aliens <laughs> somehow. Well, does anyone have... Uh, I, I, I forgot to bring my schedule, so do we end at noon, this thing? Okay, so we have about 20 minutes, if my watch is right, or my little uh, phone timer. Does anybody have anything... It doesn't even have to be related to this, but if anybody has any sort of question or comment or any sort of other thing you want to talk about or hear about, I would love to hear, hear it. Mm. Talked about that, that uh, making mistakes is part of one bright pearl. Yeah. And I was starting to think about: Is it possible to make mistakes? Or what are mistakes? Yeah, yeah. If making mistakes are part of the one bright pearl, is it even possible to make mistakes? It's a good question, and it's a kind of a. It's one of these questions that that you can get in trouble uh, answering because the the. The one sort of Zen answer to it is it's impossible to make a mistake, you know. But because viewed from a certain point of, of view, anything you do is, is exactly the thing that you do. And, and to call it a mistake or to call it not a mistake is, is um, you're just making a judgment about something that, that's, um, that, that really... Is, is an, e, e, anything you do is a kind of weird mystery within the universe, you know, any, any action you take, even if it's just a, an ordinary action, is, is kind of this mysterious movement within the universe, if you really think about it, because <clears throat> why are we even here at all? 
So in the one sense, there, there is no way to make any kind of a, a mistake. <clears throat> but at the same time, if you notice your life and your own actions, you realize that, that of course, there's, there's always mistakes and things that go wrong. And, and this is, uh, to me, really an interesting point because it's one of the things that I think is very important in Buddhist practice is this idea of ethics. You know, we always, we have the precepts, you know, the ten grave precepts and the six other precepts, I forget which is. Uh, when you, when you, uh, you take a ceremony called Jukai, it's, you, you make a formal vow in front of everyone, you know, or whoever's there at the time that you take the, the, the ceremony to uphold these precepts, these ethical precepts. And so you have this philosophy that on the one hand says it's all one big mind and in, in some sense anything you do is the right thing to do. But in, in some other sense you, you have some kind of uh, volition. This has been interesting to me lately because I've, I've started reading uh, teachers in the Advaita Vedanta tradition, which is a Hindu tradition that I think is in some ways really similar to not just Buddhism, but similar to Zen Buddhism specifically in their, in their philo philosophical outlook. But the one thing that I notice in the Advaita tradition is... is not much teaching about ethics, which is why I, I feel like, am I getting all of this from just reading books? Maybe there's something I'm missing because I'm just reading it in books. But if you read the books, there's not much. And there is a kind of, often in the Advaita system, a rejection of the idea of any sort of free will, that we have any control over anything that happens in, in life. So... Um, you know, some of the teachers in that tradition will say straight up, you just don't need to worry about what you do because the universe is sort of taking care of everything. And, and so uh, there is no right or wrong action. Uh, uh, but but I, I, think, uh, I think that's maybe... This is why I prefer the Zen tradition. I, I don't want to say they're wrong because who knows, but I think they're wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, that that there is some there is some sort of uh, we do have a certain amount of volition and I I remember um, well I actually didn't I don't remember this because I wasn't there at the time but I saw something written of uh, my teacher Nishijima Roshi and somebody had uh, had a discussion with him and it was um, it's online somewhere I don't remember where where I found this but somebody had put it up you know transcribed it and put it up. And someone was asking him, my teacher, about free will. Like, do we have free will? And Nishijima Roshi says, of course we have free will. If there's a plate of food in front of me, I can choose to eat it or not eat it. <laughs> I have free will. And it's kind of an interesting example because I, I think he's trying to say something very profound by giving this, this is the way he always did, uh, is he gives this very ordinary example, and and if you just kind of listen to it on one level, it's just kind of, well, what do you mean, free will, you can eat the food or not eat the food. But I think he's trying to say, I have free will, but to, to this extent. 
which is that in the immediate moment that something is occurring, there there is always an ability to do whatever you want within whatever want is kind of a weird thing within the the uh, confines of that moment. So the moment is here, and you you can do something, and or say something. And once the moment is passed, it becomes a fixed thing. So he he would say, uh, every action I take is carved into the universe. That was another one of uh, Nishijima Roshi's phrases that he, he used a lot. I wanted to use it for the title of uh, the, the book that I, I came out with in 2019 called Letters to a Dead Friend about Zen. One of the titles I wanted to call it was Carved into the Universe. And I, I even drew up my own version of what I wanted the um, the cover to look like based on this idea of carved into the universe. And, and uh, the, my publishers didn't like that title. So it became Letters to a Dead Friend about Zen. Um, but if you look at the cover, it's still, uh, that's the reason the title is carved into rocks on the cover. If, you, if you've ever seen the cover of the book, it's a little cartoon of the, but it's got the title carved into a rock um, based on that original idea of the title. But so in that sense, there's, it becomes a fixed thing. So everything that you've done in the past is kind of um, there and there's nothing you can do about it. So that's where things become right and wrong, I think, is, is if you've done something in the past that maybe wasn't the right thing, then there's, there's some kind of um, um, consequence for that, you know, some, something that, that happens, some reaction that happens to that, uh, which is why I think it's very important to, to pay attention to ethics and to do and to try to do the correct thing in the moment that you, in the in the one very short moment that you have, uh, a bit of free will. Uh, so I think when people say there's no free will, they're wrong. But on the other hand, when people say there's free will, I usually think that people who are talking about yes, there's free will, they think that there's a lot more free will <laughs> than than really is. I think there's a little bit of free will, uh, but you have to use that wisely. That's my uh, conclusion on that matter. Uh, so that's why, you know, it's, it's uh, I, I think that's why Zazen is, is useful, because if your mind is more clear of thoughts and ideas and habits and such like, then it becomes easier to notice what the right thing to do is. But if you have too many ideas about what the right thing to do is, that's when you go wrong. So I think the, the usual way of understanding ethics outside of Buddhism is to have a lot of very fixed ideas about right and wrong. And then you, you, you know, you, you're supposed to learn these ideas very um, deeply so that you'll always do the right thing. But the Buddhists or the Zen Buddhists kind of say the opposite, just take away all of the ideas about right and wrong and act if intuitively in that in the moment that you you are are alive, you know, because you're only alive in this in this moment, and not in the past and not in the future, you know. Something like that. Um, a friend of mine um, who has been practicing more like the um, Chinese Chan Buddhist style gave me this one booklet. Mm-hmm. Um, it's can't remember who wrote it, but it's. Um, I think it's Tai 
print and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, I think the title was something like cause and cause and effect or something. Yeah. But they really emphasize um, kind of that idea that even though there's free will um, and there's circumstances where you're kind of where you whatever the moment presents and then you act I mean there's a cause and then you act and there's whatever effect well, I can't remember the exact word but yeah I kind of forgot what my point was <laughs> <laughs> that's okay but anyway yeah. it just seems like there's a lot of emphasis on that um, they just kind of kept on going and going really on detail on that um and yeah, then um, another thing came to my mind. I was visiting this um, Chinese Buddhist nunnery or temple in, um, well, in Lampidas in California, and they were really emphasizing on the um, abbot was really emphasizing the like repentance that even though whatever acts have happened. Like you should repent and even um, like when you practice and there's a lot of you might come up come up with stuff um, I don't know she was kind of trying to make a point that they're, they're, that's the reason why there's the repentance ceremony and stuff yeah the, the repentance ceremony is actually a really important one it's, a, it's supposed to be the oldest one in, in all of Buddhism and uh, they in Japanese it's called rakufutatsu or something like that um, it's a twice a month ceremony that you do in the new moon and the full moon and uh, the whole group gets together and does um, this chant that the standard English translation that I learned is all my ancient twisted karma born from uh, body you know, born from beginningless greed, hate and delusion uh, practice through body, speech, speech, and mind. I now fully uh, avow, or I now fully repent. Um, and it's a you know you chant this, and it's really uh, important in the in the in the um, practice. Um, so so yeah, that's a kind of a, a standard uh, a point. And the whole thing about cause and effect. Dogen wrote that the. Um, Essay deep belief in cause and effect. That's that's a, a kind of a significant one in in um, Shobo Genzo, and that one's interesting too because he tells there's two places in Shobo Genzo where he tells the same story. I'm not going to try it. Maybe next lecture I can try to tell it. But it's uh, it's also a story I like about um, Hyakujo and the fox. Um, and in one story, it seems to t- take one view of cause and effect, and in the other one, he t- takes a kind of another view of cause and effect, which are completely contra- contradictory. But cause and effect is also one of the ways of translating into English the word karma. You know, we use the word karma, and, and people uh, sometimes don't notice that it's it's um, cause and effect is the is what you know. It's it's a fancy, foreign-sounding word, karma, but it just means cause and effect. Uh, you, you've read the Okumura Roshi's uh, writings, so is he talking about uh, the repentance being the practice of suffering? 
Uh, I don't know if he's talking about repentance as the practice of zazen. I guess in a way, I, I don't know of any, any place where Okumura Roshi talks about that specifically, but uh, I think a lot of people do look at it as a kind of uh, repentance practice. But then again, you shouldn't think of it as punishment. <laughs> I think sometimes people take zazen as... as uh, you ever see the Monty Python? Uh, there's a Monty Python in the Holy Grail. There's this scene where these monks are walking around doing a chant, and they have it written on a board, and they keep... Yeah, you see, some of you have seen it. They keep hitting themselves on the head uh, every time they do this chant. And there's that, 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 that kind of uh, idea does was kind of popular in medieval Christianity that, that we've done so many wrong things we should punish ourselves for doing it and I don't know about you but sometimes I would think of Zazen as like this is my punishment for, <laughs> for having done so many bad things in my life I have to sit here very still and quiet and try to you know, atone for, for all the bad things that I've done but having said that the other way to think of, of Zazen is you can't uh, it, this is uh, some people say this you can't create karma in zazen well you do create some sort of karma but it's it's positive i suppose because you're not doing anything so you you're not you can't do anything wrong because you're, <laughs> because you're not doing anything uh, and that's also a way to kind of practice uh, repentance in a way by by placing yourself in a situation where you can't you can't really harm anybody i think or I hope. <laughs> there is also this precept, uh, I think it was put in Cogonzino's book, this version, no dwelling on past mistakes. Ah, yeah, no dwelling on so past mistakes. Kind of sometimes in life, and in work, if you have to, like, maybe first situation comes work, if I have to give instructions or something, and do I have to be too strict or too, like, uh, let people do what they want to do? And sometimes you kind of say, like, too strict something, and you realize realize that okay this was kind of like good but uh, you have to also like change a little bit yeah to, and also like that you cannot like think anymore that because new situation comes really fast right. and also that way I think it's like important but it doesn't mean that you shouldn't learn anything but yeah the same topic. yeah you learn from the past mistakes but dwelling on the past mistakes is just a way of reinforcing your own sense of self, you know, I'm yeah. so bad, I'm so bad, it's just a, another way to make your, your, you seem like more of a, a sense of individual self, which is why the precept of don't dwell on past mistakes exists. I think I saw your hand up. Mm, yeah, uh, I almost forgot, yeah, yeah, I was just going to say that it's kind of a nice Zen paradox, this, that the whole universe is a one bright pearl and there's nothing you can basically do wrong. And then, then, on the other hand, uh, the repentance ceremony is one of the oldest yeah. ceremonies. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of a nice. <laughs> yeah, it's always it's always like that, you know. And I, I think that 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 paradox is an important part of the teaching. And and um, you know, the I, I, some of the older trend you don't see them in print very often, but some of the older translations of Buddhism. It feels to me when I read them like the authors are trying to smooth out the, the contradictions, you know, trying to re resolve the contradictions because they don't realize that the contradiction is actually an important part of the teaching. You know, they're, they're saying it's like this and it's like that. You know, it's not aliens. I'm not saying it's aliens, but it's aliens. It's the, it's, it's, it can be the contradictory things at the same time.
and that's just kind of the way actual experience is. How is the um, full moon ceremony? Is it really complicated? It's pretty complicated. Uh, it's I've done it a, cu- a couple of times at Tassajara, and then we tried to learn it and do it in Los Angeles, and it, it proved to be really complicated for us, so we, we, we had a hard time with it. But basically, you recite all of the precepts in a group and, and recite them three times, and there's a bunch of bells and stuff that go along with it. That's the complicated part. <laughs> but but the, the simple thing is, is basically the group just gets together and... and um, each of the precepts they, they recite uh, three times, and you know, um, some you you were bringing about the three times, right? Yeah, that's kind of a, a standard thing in a lot of religions that uh, that things are done um, three times, and that happens in Buddhism a lot. When you take, if you do the, it, it's actually the Jukai ceremony is really what the uh, full moon ceremony is almost the same thing. It's just a kind of a fancy version of the, the Jukai ceremony in which you also recite the precepts uh, three times. And then the teacher says, uh, I, I, I always hate doing it because I, I want to laugh at this, you know, they, they, because they, you say, can you keep this precept for the rest of your life? And the person says, yes, I can. And then I say, can you keep the precept for the rest of your life? Yes, I can. Can you keep... It's like I don't believe you, you know? <laughs> I feel like I'm, you know, right, questioning. Reason, hmm? You don't believe us for a very good reason. Well, maybe not. <laughs> maybe. But you're, yeah, you're, you're supposed to, to answer it three times each time. And repeat it three times. I'm just trying to keep an eye on the time. Speaking of time, I think we could, I could take one more. It's eleven fifty-seven, or we could finish either way. That always puts too much pressure. If I say one more question, then people are like, "Oh, it has to be a good question." <laughs> it doesn't have to be a good question. Oh, that's because you're Finnish. <laughs> If you were Americans, you'd be jumping in like, my question is the most important question. Okay, I have a question. Okay. Maybe a bad one. Okay, good. Uh, I still ha- haven't kind of understood. What, what's the difference between Shikantasa and Sasen? Uh, well, I don't understand the word. yeah, Shikantasa is just a... a a practice within zazen. So in 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 zazen, there's different there's different ways you know to do zazen, and and for one of them, for example, is to practice a koan practice. So you you keep a koan in your mind and you think about it. Um, in and shikantaza was the was the version that Dogen taught, which is just sitting, and that and it's it's an interesting word because the the I think it's the ta in shikantaza is a, I'm trying to draw it. It's like an image of a, a nail, and it's it's what's translated into English as just. But the image that's used to you know because the kanji characters are are originally drawings of things, so it's a hammer hitting a nail. So it, it's it's just sitting, you know, just you know directly just just doing the thing, only that. So shikantaza, zazen, is, is zazen where you're trying to do, you're not trying to do anything, you're trying to just sit. 
you know, just to do nothing else. And that's the, the, the difficult thing because you always, most of us feel like we should be doing something while we're sitting. We're sitting for some reason, right? You know, it's to get enlightenment or to, to have peace of mind or to, you know, whatever that you're trying to do. And Dogen, by, by talking about Shikantaza, takes all of that away. So you're, you're, not, you're not doing anything but trying to only sit. You know, and if you if you think of zaza in that way, sometimes you know it might be useful for you during this retreat to think of it that way. Sometimes just see what happens if you just think of it. I'm not trying to do anything else but this. You know, just sit still. I can remember one time where that became really apparent to me. I don't, I can't remember exactly what was going on in my life, but something something really difficult was happening. Um, probably some personal problem or, or something I was going through. And I had signed up to go to a retreat. Actually, it was one of the first times I was expected to lead or at least give the talks at a retreat that wasn't my group. So uh, I was sitting, but I wasn't doing dokusan or anything. I was just supposed to give the talks. But I was there, and I was in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And this so much trouble was going on in my mind that the only thing I could do you know, I couldn't expect anything spiritual to happen during this practice. The only thing I could do is just try to sit still. You know, that, 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 that was all. Because there was so much going on in my mind that I just had to... The only thing I was going to get out of this zazen was just sitting, sitting still. And I really felt at that moment shikantaza was, was my only option. And actually it turned out to be for me, a really good retreat when I just said, I, I'm not even going to try to have a spiritual experience or anything like that. I'm just going to try to manage for the next uh, three days or whatever the session was to just not get up and run away or something, you know, or scream or, or whatever, just sit still and let all of this, this trouble happen in my mind, uh, but not, not react to it. Um, that's... To me, that's Shikantaza. All right, that was my talk from Lami, Finland, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to donate to keep this podcast going, go to hardcorezen.info slash donate. That is hardcorezen.info slash donate, and you will find links to my PayPal and Patreon accounts. That's my only way of making a living these days, so I really appreciate your support, and thank you very much for listening. We'll see you next time. Have a good time all the time. Bye.